Uh, welcome. Hopefully, an opportunity to get to know someone maybe a little bit more. Our hope is each week to have uh, just four minutes to have kind of a micro small group, a micro group, I guess is what you call that, um, to, to connect to someone and maybe a, a level more than just what's your name or why you're here. Uh, and this is a question that I uh, have loved um, thinking about because I think each day if I think about all the people who have helped me, uh, it really humbles me actually and, and it causes me um, to be grateful. And there's a question that we're going to uh, encounter today in, in the passage that we're in. First, I want to introduce myself a little bit. Last week, I didn't do this, so maybe some of you don't know who I am. <laughs> I had multiple people come up after and say, no one knows who you are. So my name's Drew. I'm the pastor here at, uh, at uh, Hope Community Church, Columbia Heights. And uh, this is my family from the Left it's Zariah and Zoe. Zariah is eight. She goes to school here in third grade, uh, just down the hall. She's thrilled that she gets to be in the building. Uh, she kind of runs the show because she knows the building. Uh, this is Zoe. She's our middle schooler. Uh, that's me in the middle. That's Drew, the beard. This is my wife, Kelly. And this is a new addition to our family. This is Frank, who just moved in at the end of October, uh, who's been fun. Uh, he's awesome, but... He goes to the bathroom in our house, so he's low on my list sometimes of people I love. I guess technically we all do that, but um, we're, I, I'm really uh, glad you're here. This is a joy to get to meet again and continue to meet here in, at, um, at Highland. We're just starting a series that we're doing just for a few weeks before we start a series in the book of Job. So our, our uh, semester here through uh, for the next eight weeks after that will be uh, in the book of Job, thinking about suffering and what that looks like to suffer. But first we're going to talk about uh, what it looks like kind of to suffer as well in what, what we call turbulent times. So we're, we're doing a quick series called Love Thy Neighbor, I Love People in Turbulent Times, and partially because of, uh, if you've watched like regular TV, uh, we don't have regular TV, we just have like Netflix, but um, I was recently actually, we are in Iowa, uh, where like political things get exciting, even exciting is probably the right word, uh, quicker than here, and we were there and I think every commercial was like an ad for a politician uh, telling us why that person is a, a terrible person. Uh, and so we, uh, we were feeling that over Christmas, like, oh my goodness, it is that season again where we start feeling that and seeing people post things and talk about things. But I think just in general, not even just that, just thinking, that, I think sometimes we, we can feel that turbulent uh, time around us in just what we see people posting, whether that's online or just in conversations or sometimes things can become polarized. So we want to take a time to think, just for three weeks, think of some helpful tools and some ways to think, uh, what does it mean if we follow Jesus when um, things are kind of crazy around us or feel crazy? And I think as we move into the season um, of elections, it can feel maybe a little ramped up. So that's our hope. We're going to take three weeks just to think about a few different things, what that looks like, um, and give us hopefully some things to apply uh, in that time. So that's where we're starting. Our uh, uh, first day here, uh, we're going to get the opportunity to ask the question of who is my neighbor? So if we're called to love thy neighbor, who is my neighbor? And actually someone asked that question in scripture. And actually, uh, the flip of that, I was able to figure this out, thankfully, through a BuzzFeed quiz. I don't know if anyone knows who, what BuzzFeed is. It's a website. You can go on there and take these quizzes. They ask you questions. And then at the end, they tell you, they give you your results. So you don't even have to think for yourself. You can just take the quiz and find out, like, what biblical character you are or what your favorite piece of pizza is or, like, who, who you're going to marry or who your celebrity crush is. And I thankfully found one. 
to find out who my arch nemesis is. So this quiz will help me figure out who my enemy is, which would then in turn hopefully help me know who my neighbor is. So I just wanted you to journey with me on my BuzzFeed quiz. Um, I selected appropriate questions that they asked me uh, to help you. This is actually, I actually did this quiz multiple times to figure out if I could get the right arch enemy. <laughs> and uh, just wait, it's a great, it's great to figure this out. You'll all know. So the first question was, do you feel uh, like you have enemies? No, I'm an angel. Haters gonna hate, <laughs> big time. Hope not, and of course, no, I'm an angel. So I picked that. Next question on our survey to find out my arch enemy was I had to pick a weapon. So this just got kind of intense. Uh, the options for the weapons were a throwing star, a catapult, a lightsaber, or a fireball. And of course, you can't, I mean, that's not even a question, right? It's gotta be a lightsaber. It's not even, come on. A catapult would be cool, hard to move around though. So the next question on the BuzzFeed quiz was do you, uh, how do you deal with an enemy? Do I ignore them? Do I get awkward? Do I love them? Or do I destroy them? <laughs> Uh, and of course, I mean, I have to uh, ignore them, right? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna love them. I'm just gonna walk away. Uh, that might, she might be kind of a little honest. What is your greatest strength? Uh, is it being kind? Is it my work ethic? Is it being a boss? Is that a strength? And then being awesome, of course, being awesome is my greatest strength. My kids say this every week to me. <laughs> They don't. This is, my, this, is my, this is my favorite category. What is your greatest weakness? All of these were not weaknesses. They were, <laughs> I care too much. I'm so perfect it upsets people. <laughs> I'm too awesome. I'm too nice. This might be why I have enemies, because I believe these things. But of course, thankfully, one of them worked. I am too awesome. It's hard, but it, it's something I got to work through, being too awesome. We got just a few more left here. Where do you see yourself in five years? Just, just doing me. So perfect it upsets people. That's interesting, isn't it? Same one. I don't know. In the same place. Isn't that wild? It's the same. Anyway. Uh, and I see myself just doing me. Whatever that means. That seems like an easy way out. I had to pick a superpower that will help me know my arch nemesis flying. Laser eyes. Lobster hands. Perfect high fives. Of course you pick lobster hands. That's an option. You can do so many things with giant. I assume they're giant. Oh, I'm rethinking this. If they're little, like regular lobster hands. Well, that's what I picked, so I got to stick with it. This was fantastic. Who do I dislike the most? Crocs, sharks, crowds, or traffic? This was really tough. I, I actually do, I'm cool with Crocs. They're very comfortable, but I don't really, sharks kind of scare me. So I picked sharks. That was the last of my answers. Then it tallied all of my answers. I went into a, a very complex algorithm, I'm sure, on the BuzzFeed website. And you ready for this? This is my arch enemy. It's a pineapple wearing sunglasses. <laughs> all that work. To Obviously, a pineapple wearing sunglasses is my arch enemy. Look, you don't have to be weary of pineapples. Most pineapples are fine. But there's one, there's one super cool pineapple out there who's a major problem. My favorite part is at the end, it says, but you must destroy it before it destroys you. You've been warned. <laughs> So thankfully, if you're wondering today driving in, I wonder what Drew's arch enemy is. I figured it out through a simple BuzzFeed quiz. Uh, I did take this multiple times. My other arch enemies were Taylor Swift and squirrels. So in general, that's who I'm staying away from. Our hope though is to help us think through this, that question today as we look at who is my neighbor. And we're gonna look at a story that's a pretty classic uh, story in scripture in the book of Luke. Um, of the Good Samaritan, and that, that story, this is how the story starts, is someone asking a question, 
So who is my neighbor? I'm supposed to love my neighbor. So who is it? Who, who are the people? How do I figure out and assess? Uh, they didn't have BuzzFeed quizzes then. So how, how do you figure out who then is the enemy and who is um, the neighbor? So if you're... Uh, if you want to flip open a Bible, if you're someone who has a Bible or you like to read along in your app, otherwise all the words will be up here. We're going to go uh, hop into Luke 10 and look at the story of the Good Samaritan today. Just to help us kind of know what's happening here, we're going to look at what is called a parable. Uh, and a parable is a short uh, story that, or sometimes even a riddle that Jesus will share uh, with people to explain the kingdom of God, to, to help them understand uh, sometimes maybe even a complex idea, but through a story it helps really focus on what that idea of thought is. Often these parables flip how the world works on their head, uh, but gives us a view, a glimpse into the kingdom of God. It's like a, a window into this is what it looks like to be in God's family, in his kingdom. And this is going to be in the book of Luke. The book of Luke is one of the gospels. Uh, uh, gospel means good news. The gospels are the four books in the beginning of the New Testament. Um, I'd like to say you flip your Bible open in the middle, but it's not really in the middle. It's kind of at the end, uh, the last uh, third of the Bible. And um, the gospel is a place where we get to hear the story of Jesus. There's actually four gospels. We get this great full picture of who Jesus was um, when he was born through his resurrection. And the book of Luke is interesting because it's written by Luke, who actually didn't necessarily hang out with Jesus, but heard all of the stories uh, of Jesus and put them together. We think Luke probably was a doctor. He was really smart. He was well-educated. Um, Luke also is interesting. He wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile, meaning he wasn't a Jew. So he actually um, has this unique story, story because he's writing this book with such detail and in a way that actually connects to people who maybe didn't grow up Jewish. Also, the last interesting thing I think about the book of Luke is that it's the first in kind of a series of two books. Luke flows right into the book of Acts, which is really a cool book because it tells the story of the early church. When Jesus is resurrected, we go into the book of Acts and hear what does then it look like to start churches and plant churches? And that, for me, has been a really encouraging book as we've started, a, started our church here. So that's, that's the plan. We, um, in the big arc of Scripture... Luke fits right in this, uh, in this red circle. So we get a creation where God has created the world. In that creation, people decide to turn from God. Um, and we have a fall. Things are broken. Things aren't right. And then we need God to come and rescue us. And so Luke is right in the middle of that rescue story where Jesus is going to come back. And uh, Luke points us to this restoration. So if you're trying to understand where in the Bible that all fits, that's just the uh, super fast overview but let's get into Luke here. Now we zoom in from this giant arc of scripture into the book of Luke. Jesus is hanging out with his disciples and some other people. He's been doing miracle after miracle, um, healing people, feeding 5,000 people with nothing, uh, really flipping a lot of things on its head, what it looks like to follow God, to be faithful to God. And he um, meets a person that we hear is an expert in the law, and uh, he's going to have this interaction. We get this little intro to this, the actual situation, and then he's going to get into the parable. So if you're, if you're with us, this is in Luke 10, uh, verse 25, we start here. We're just going to go uh, chug right through these verses one by one. All right, let's start here in Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal Life. So there's someone who is an expert in the law. In some translations, he's called a lawyer. Um, this person would have been uh, well-educated, not just uh, generally, but he would have been well-educated in the word of God, understood what God's commandments were. Um, he took his Bible schooling very serious. And so he would have known 
scripture and probably known and says he's testing, he would have maybe had an idea already what he thought Jesus should say. And so he comes to Jesus and asks him this question, what does it take to inherit the kingdom or the inherit eternal life? This phrase would have been synonymous. It would have been similar to all throughout the gospels. We hear people ask Jesus, what does it look like to, to enter into the kingdom of God? What does it look like to uh, be welcomed into God's family? And so he's asking this question, what does that look like? to be a part of God's forever family. And so thankfully, Jesus answers him. Uh, he says, it is written in the law. How do you read it? So he says, it's written in the law. You know the law. It's written in there. How do you read that? What, what do you think about that? His first question is to point to the word of God. I think it's, this is a, a small, this isn't the main point of this passage, but I think it's interesting that Jesus often goes to scripture first. He says, well, what does God say in his word? which is a, is a helpful little tip. Uh, you're asking a question, what does God say in his word? Um, this is also interesting because as a, um, a faithful Jew who was an expert in law, he probably would have had been partaking in a tradition where there's actually these bracelets, kind of bracelets they'd wear on their wrists that actually had scripture on them. They'd literally be carrying scripture with them. And the scripture often that was on those was the answer to this question was the uh, passage from Deuteronomy 6.5 and from Leviticus 19.18. And actually, we don't even need to look those up. He, quote, he quotes those. So even in this, he, Jesus may have even gestured, right, and said, well, what is written? And pointed to the guy's wrist. Look on your wrist. Remember, we have those words on our wrist. The core of what it means to be a follower of God is on your wrist. So he answers them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6.5. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19.18. So he answers him with the words that for centuries people have said, this is what it means. At the core of what it means is to first follow God, love our God with everything we have, and then from there we need to love our neighbors. This is the same thing Jesus answers earlier. In, in the Gospels we see Jesus, uh, they're asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? He says the same thing, right? This guy's answering exactly how Jesus would have answered. First, we love God, we give him our worship, and from there, then we can love uh, people. That our love for people doesn't get us into inherit uh, the kingdom of God, doesn't get us into the family of God. Our love for God does. And secondly, when Jesus says it, he actually says the first commandment is to love God. And then the second, from there, we get to love people. So he answers correctly, right? Jesus actually says, you have answered correctly. That would be an amazing moment if you got to hang out with Jesus and say, and he asks you a question and you answer it and you'd be, I'd be very nervous. I would say, this, maybe? <laughs> and then if he says, you answered correctly, I would go, that's the greatest report card ever, right? If you get one question right, talking to Jesus is pretty good, one for one. He answers him. Not only does he say that's correct, but then he says, do that. Do what you just said and you will live. So you don't do that, then death comes. But if you do that, you live. Which, which can, could, could mean if you do other things than that, if we choose other things to give all of ourselves to, then we don't live. Or you could say you die. To love anything else above God could mean death. But if you want eternal life, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, you're right. Do that. Good work, expert in the law. You did it. Now go and do that. That could be the end of our story. We could be done. I could say thanks and pray and we could get out of here and go have lunch, but that's not the end of the story. The, the expert is not done. He decides to ask another question. And we actually get an insight into why he's asking the question. I love that Luke actually shares with us his motivation. 
but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, that's for you. If you're with him, you say like, hey, it's okay, man, don't. <laughs> you got one right. Like, get out of there. But he is going to ask another question. He says, the question we're going to get at today, is who is my neighbor? So I should love God with, with all of who I am and I should love my neighbor. Yeah, that's right. And so then he says, which is a logical question, who is my neighbor? He wants to justify himself. He wants to make sure that he's right, that he's good with God. And he'd like Jesus to just uh, confirm that the people he's loving are correct and the people he's choosing not to love are also okay to not, to not love. These five words really tell us a lot about his heart. And I would say those are words that, that deeply convicted me this week as I thought, how often am I saying, who is my neighbor? Jesus, tell me who I'm supposed to care for and move towards and love, and who do I not have to? I will love my neighbor, but just who is that exactly? I know there's people that need to be loved, but am I the one that needs to do that? Isn't there someone else? And there's some people out there that are kind of disgusting or unclean, maybe outcasts. It's not going to look good for me to move towards them. You're talking about them, right? I don't, I don't need to move towards them. I can pick others. What he's doing here is he's justifying his behavior, his love, or maybe his lack of love because of his, uh, for, for good reasons. And what I mean by that is um, he has, can put his righteousness, his right standing with God, what makes him uh, good in other things. And I want to stop here because this is, I think, is really helpful for us to think of before we enter into the parable, we can put ourselves in that. Um, that. That I can see my love for God and for people not as a foundational part, but maybe just part of who I am, rather than the foundation of who I am and why I exist is to love God and love people. I can choose other things to really be the foundation of what makes me right. There's a guy named Bob Thune, who's a pastor in Omaha, who wrote a book called The Gospel-Centered Life. And he says, what you do... What do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility, validity, acceptance, or good standing? Your answer to this question will often reveal something other than Jesus. And that, you think, is your righteousness and what justifies you. When you're not firmly rooted in the gospel, you rely on these false sources of righteousness to build up your reputation and give you a sense of worth and value. So this, in a moment here, this, this guy's asking this question of what really brings my righteousness. And, and Bob Thune actually gives us a list. So we're just gonna, real quick, I wanna show this to you because uh, I would guess within two or three, you'll feel, you'll, you'll have something to work on. <laughs> so let's, let's just start. These are uh, from his book. These are ones that you work through. You take all, all, your whole life, I guess, to work through these, but these are ones that I think have been helpful to stick out. How a job righteousness. I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. We're done. That's all we need, right? Is that one? And we probably all feel... <laughs> Feel, oh, okay, I think I put all my hope in my, the fact that I'm a hard worker means I'm, I'm justified, that I'm good. It's not the fact that I love God and I love people well. My family righteousness, because I do things right, as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. This is, this is not me, because I can't control my kids, so that'd be cool, but nope. Intellectual righteousness, I'm, I'm better read, more articulate, and more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me better than them, meaning I, and I don't have to do certain things. Theologically righteous, I have good theology. God prefers me over those who have bad theology. That's a dangerous one. Schedule righteousness, I'm self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others. 
We got more. Here they come. Flexibility. In the world that's busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't make time for other people. Mercy, righteousness, I care about the poor and disadvantaged the way everyone else should. A better because of that. Legalistic righteousness, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls who do. <laughs> Apparently that's a thing. Uh, too many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days. I do all the right things, so I must be right. This, this for sure, uh, historically, is probably one of the, the aspects this expert in the law would have been in. He would have followed all the rules correctly, so then he was justified in, in, in doing or not doing things. Financial righteousness, I manage my money wisely and stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. And the last two, political righteousness. If you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate. This gets at the heart of something we're gonna, we have been seeing and will continue to see. Uh, if, if, you can, if you vote for the right party or if you're part of the right political movement, then, then you're right and you're good. And, and all things, your hope is in that. So all things will be okay if that happens. Intolerance, righteousness. I'm open-minded and charitable towards those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus in that way. Anytime we start saying, I'm a lot like Jesus and those people aren't, uh, I think we get in some trouble. So I don't know which one of these uh, maybe rocks your foundation a little bit. I don't know which one would have been the expert's motivation. It's probably a mix of a lot of them. Um, but in just thinking about this question, I want us to sit in that, that he's asking that question. I think we're also asking that question a lot. Who is my neighbor? Uh, what actually makes me right? And so 2,000 years ago, we get a lesson from Jesus, a parable we're about to read about what it looks like to be in God's family and his kingdom. Uh, and that parable is so very true today in the same way. So let's see what Jesus says as he tells this great short story to remind us of that. In reply, Jesus says, so when you ask Jesus a question and then he uh, says, I'm gonna tell you a parable, you, you sit down because he's about to... Uh, kind of blow your mind or uh, disagree with you a little bit. So in reply, Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. This starts with an interesting description. Jesus doesn't give us any description. He says, a man. This phrase actually just means like a general person. He intentionally doesn't say this man was this kind of person or did these kinds of things. He was a really good person or a really bad person. He intentionally just says it's an image bearer of God, a human, a person. So you don't get the opportunity to say, oh, he's that kind of person. Oh, he deserves that beating. He shouldn't have been there. But instead describes a man, just a human being, an image bearer of God, going into a place. So this road is helpful to know. This is a, a road that is windy. There's caves. It's actually known as a very dangerous part. Uh, it was, you know, like the, the bad part of town in these areas. It was dangerous to even go by yourself there, often even at night especially. It was known because uh, robbers and thieves, people would hide in the uh, caves and things and they would jump out and attack people and steal things or hurt people. Uh, it wasn't uncommon that people would be beaten to death on this uh, path. And so there's a person who goes on this path and they're beaten. And not only is their identity hidden by 
how he describes them, but their identity becomes hidden because they're stripped of their clothes. You now don't know who they are just by what they're wearing or how nice or not nice or what kind of things are attached to their clothing that would have identified them. So now if you see them laying there, you don't know from a name we don't know in the story and the person encountering them in the parable also doesn't know. Also, they're beaten and they're bloody. If they're left half dead, they probably are a bit unrecognizable because of the, the beating they've had. It actually tells us that they're left half dead. They're actually left laying there bleeding, meaning eventually, without help, will die. They're in a bad, bad spot, helpless, alone, dying, unable to help themselves in this dark and dangerous place and broken. They're waiting. And thankfully, help is coming. And the story continues. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. He saw, he saw me pass by. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. This is, this is helpful. This is really important. This is the first time we get actually a description of the people in this story. There's still an anonymous human being, image bearer, and a holy person, actually two people, an actual priest and a Levite who would have been part of the, a, a holy tribe. These people would have been known for their help, for their calling from God to serve and love people. They're calling to actually help atone for people's sins in the temple. And they see him and they walk by, maybe because, of, um, because they're worried to touch a person who was injured, or maybe they weren't sure of their identity, so they didn't want to associate with them because that would make them unclean. Maybe they thought he shouldn't have been in this dangerous part of town. I mean, this is a bad road. That's what you get for walking by yourself in a bad road. Maybe, who knows, maybe he was in an altercation because he was trying to sell goods, stolen goods to other robbers. You could, right? You could make up lots of reasons why this person, I'm sure he got himself into this situation and he'll have to figure out a way to get himself out of it. Maybe he's a robber who got in trouble. Maybe, uh, maybe just not one of us. He doesn't look like he's a Jew, and, and I, you know, I can't take that risk. Maybe he's, you know, like, maybe he's a Republican or a Democrat. Or maybe he's a Libertarian, right? Then he for sure would want us to let him help himself. <laughs> or maybe, I really think, maybe, I, I, we, often in the story we think, was well, that priest and Levi are just terrible, right? They're just these evil, I, maybe they're just, it's less selfish. Maybe they genuinely are just on their way to do something really important. And maybe they see a lot of people left for dead. And they said, I just have really important things to get to. I have all of these other people who need my help. I, I can't stop and help this one person. Um, it's really easy to say like, you silly priest, why couldn't you help him? And I think, really though, like a lot of hurting people I pass by for a lot of, reasons. Thankfully, help does arrive. At this point in the story, I think the expert in the law would have said like, oh, I'm sure they had a good reason. Where is this story going? Maybe that's the guy that I don't have to be neighbor to. And then we hear, but a Samaritan. But a Samaritan. That word would have been a strong word. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. So he saw him, didn't walk away. He saw him and stopped and took pity. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 
The next day he took out two denarii and, and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you any extra expense you have. A Samaritan would have been a strong words because a Samaritan would have been a, uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum for whatever this expert of the law was. A Samaritan is a group of people who are our arch enemies. If, they t- if you took the BuzzFeed quiz, the extra law, Samaritan is what would have come off. These are people who have historically, uh, there's been actual physical violence between them and lots of, of talk and historically lots of language about how, how dirty those people are, how terrible those people are, how, how unsafe those people are. Your kids would tell stories of how uh, you, you don't want to be like the Samaritans. The, the stories of bad people are, but a Samaritan arrives. Ooh, and then something terrible happens. And so Jesus is telling a story and the Samaritan becomes the one who actually takes pity and actually cares for him, actually becomes a neighbor. I, I can't, I mean, we, I don't, know if I fully understand that in, my, in the culture we live in, but when he says, but a Samaritan, and then he says he's the one who cared, there, there's for sure stuff going on now in the expert in the law, like what is going on? Why are you using him as the hero in this story? But look at what he does. He shows great mercy to him. He saw him. He took pity. He went down to him. He bandaged him, which means he would have used probably his own clothing to, to get bloody and, and ruined. He himself would have been bloodied by having to stoop down and help this man. He uses his own wine, his own oil to help this man. He carries his body onto the donkey. He sets him on a donkey and then he walks next to a donkey to bring him to an inn. There's no way this was on his schedule for today. He didn't, flip, he didn't take his iPhone out and look through his, his calendar and was like, this afternoon I got four hours to find a bloody guy, <laughs> throw him on my donkey, take him to an inn, perfect. It's my, it's my normal Wednesday thing. He takes him into a town. Not only in all of this, he's taking a risk. He's stopping on a very dangerous road to help people and become vulnerable himself. Sets him on the donkey, takes him to an inn. He doesn't just drop him off and say, there's a guy who got hurt, I gotta get back to my thing. He actually stays there and actually says, in the morning, so he, he stays the night to care for this person. And then not only does he just care for him and leave, he continues to care for him by giving of his own money so that this man could be cared for. That, that amount is like debated if it's two days or two months or however long that is, depending on how, how amazing you want this story to be. It could be 10, ten years salary. Um, but he gives his money, we know that, to say to the innkeeper, please continue to care for this person that I, that I just met on the side of the road who actually doesn't know me. I've just been caring for them. And not only that, this, this has struck me this week because I do not remember this part of the story. He says, I'm gonna come back actually and I'll pay you the rest of whatever it costs to make sure this person's right. That's like insane commitment to loving this man. I mean, he's gonna make a point. He'll come back again and check on him. If you, if you remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about... Um, or a few weeks ago, we were talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he has this quote that, that for me rings true often, that are we willing to be interrupted by God? And in this moment, this man was quite interrupted by God to care for this man. This actually, this passage is, is really um, a powerful story, um, and uh, it, it's, a, it's actually the passage that was preached uh, by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. the day before he um, was assassinated. So on April 3rd, 1968, 
in Memphis, there was a gathering of people before he was going to give this public uh, speech, and he preached on this passage at a church. Uh, uh, imagine what, what a wild thing huh, for him to be preaching and talking about what it looked like to love neighbors. And he says this about this moment in the passage. And so the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? So this is, I think, where Jesus has flipped, has really flipped the script on us. We're asking the question, what does this do for me? How does this make me right? Is this, is this good for, for my bottom line? And instead, he's saying, are you asking the question, what would happen to this man if I don't stop? And so once again, we enter, we get a glimpse into the window. We get to peek into what the kingdom of God looks like. And in God's family and his kingdom where he reigns, it looks like when someone is hurting, we're able to be interrupted. We're now free. God has freed us to pursue all those righteousness because those things are taken care of in him. We have life in him. We're welcomed into his family. We have riches beyond anything we could ever want. We have community and life and family and uh, we don't need to pursue those because we have those in Christ and now we're free to go. And so the passage ends here. Uh, Jesus asks him the question then. It's like a great Bible study moment. Jesus as the greatest small group leader of all time says, okay, that's what we read. Hey, what do you think about it? Which of these three, first question is, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? This is one of those hopefully obvious questions, right? He's like, okay. And the expert says, the one who had mercy on him, right? That's how I'd answer if I was a kid. The one who had mercy on him. I get it. I'm not supposed to hit my sister. The one who had mercy on him. I should hug and not hurt with my hands. This is fascinating too. The Samaritan actually uses language that he uses the same language as a man. He uses a very anonymous language. He can't even get the word Samaritan out of his mouth. The one who had mercy on him. The person, I don't even want to say his name, I want to say what kind of person he is who had mercy on him. And Jesus says something similar that he said before. Yeah, go and do that. Do likewise. So as we think about uh, what this looks like, what does it look like to love our neighbors well, I think we have to first think about what questions are we asking. Are we asking, do I have to love that person? Do I have to show kindness? Do I have to maybe bite my tongue uh, or, or care when it's not easy to care? Which people do I have to? As we go about our day and we're walking down our paths, right? We're walking through snowy streets uh, and we see someone hurting or we're walking through our day and people are feeling angry or divisive or they're, they're polarizing things. Um, we can see that that's out of hurt. So as we see people uh, hurting, are we willing to give the soothing bandage of a listening ear? Are we willing to give the healing balm of your presence, not your opinion, but your presence with a person to care? Can you be interrupted to give them a taste of the kingdom of God, to give someone a little peek into what it looks like to be in God's kingdom, to take that burden of, of pursuing our own righteousness off of us? Let's not forget the answer that the expert gave that was correct. We are to love God, and out of that great love, we get to become people who love people really well around us. So as things are turbulent, we get to say, we get to bring love, not only love, but we get to bring the peace that comes from the Prince of Peace. And this is really 
hard and in fact, I would say impossible. Each day I'm gonna not do this. Each day I will run into people who are hurting and I will say, I have other things to do. You shouldn't have gotten yourself into that spot. But God has made it possible because we cannot forget that this story is about a good Samaritan, but really this story is about our good God, who we know in Romans says God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Remember this? We were dead on the side of a road, helpless, bleeding out. We had no hope other than that hopefully we would die quickly. And Jesus saw us. He took pity on us. He went to us. He bandaged us. He bloodied himself using his own supplies to heal us. He carries us in risk of being beaten. In fact, actually being beaten and dead. He cares for us. And not only that, but he leaves us uh, with a great inheritance and Jesus comes back. Jesus is the greatest neighbor. And that through us loving him first, we get the power of him and the spirit in us to do that. We get to be interrupted each day and it's actually an exciting, joyful thing to know. I get to be used like Jesus was to help people. As we end our time here, I want to introduce this month. Uh, February is Black History Month, and I was excited to share with you some people who have really encouraged me. Uh, and so each, each week we're going to have a hero of black history that I get to highlight. And, and uh, this one is, is a good Samaritan, is this story. Um, this guy's name is John Stewart. He lived uh, way back. He was born in 1786. I want to share just a little story of him uh, and what, what he's done and how, uh, if you listen... He's done this. He's learned to love his neighbor well. Stewart was born free in Virginia around 1786 and moved to Ohio in 1807. Loneliness and alcohol made him miserable and led him to contemplate suicide. But instead of his death, however, he found life in coming to Christ and he joined the Methodist movement. Then Stewart said he heard a voice telling him, thou shalt declare my counsel faithfully. He felt uh, convinced that God was sending him to preach the gospel to American Indians. So he journeyed to, the, to northern uh, Ohio, to, to the Wyandot, American Indian tribe. Once a thriving people, these people had re been reduced to 700 when he arrived. They were on this upper Sandusky River, and this was the year 1816. When he uh, arrived there, there was another black man that actually had been taken in as a slave to the tribe, Jonathan Pointer, and he knew the language. So he told Stuart, this is folly. You, you don't want to preach to these people. Nonetheless, he, he preached, he shared the gospel with these people, lived with these people. Later, it's actually reported back that Pointer would, would uh, interpret his sermons to the group. And he later, after Pointer actually converted and became a follower of Jesus, he said, in those early days, I would actually say things like, so he says this, I don't know if it's true, but this is what he's saying. <laughs> is it awesome? <laughs> and, it's, and it still worked. I love that. <laughs> We should have someone do that each week up here. They could just say like, I don't know if he knows what he's talking about, but here he is. Stuart also encountered a lot of opposition from them. The original chief that he met there, Two Logs, said, uh, said to the tribe, the great spirit did not create black people. The evil spirit did. Do not listen to him. Still, for years, he won the trust of the people. He saw conversions. Matthew Peacock, the first chief to convert, recalled uh, when he first came, 
He said this, we treated him ill, we gave him little to eat and trampled on him and were jealous uh, of him for a whole year. But after many years of Stewart's ministry, Peacock said the Wyandots had changed their minds. We were convinced that God had sent him to us. Stewart made his mark. He was the first black missionary to Native Americans and he was the first Methodist to become a home missionary in America. He continued doing that for years until his death. Um, he celebrated amongst those people, this is what it looks like. I, I don't think you need to move somewhere and be uh, suffer for years to necessarily do this, but what would it look like tomorrow if we woke up and we said, today, I'm gonna love people in a way that they're convinced God sent me to them. Can you imagine, I mean, think of the think of things he went through, the way he had to love people in very turbulent times to, to do that. Instead of assessing each person to see if they're worthy of our help, we get to say you're worthy of our help because you're created in God's image. We get to bring the great news of the Prince of Peace who is alive and well and has all things in his hands. So we get to ask the question, who is our neighbor? And we get to hear the response, you are. You are a neighbor empowered by God to bring this love to Christ. I'm gonna ask us to take a little time now. We're gonna respond for, for a little while and reflect. These are some questions that might be helpful. They're in your handout. If you wanna take these home or over lunch today with some friends or at your Super Bowl party. Hey, my pastor said we gotta talk about these. <laughs> that was, I had to mention Super Bowl, right? Because Super Bowl, okay. That was my one mention. Got in there. These are some questions that are helpful, I think, in reflecting this. Do you know the one who came to your rescue when you were left for dead? We, we got to start there every day. Remind ourselves of who that is. Do you look to justify yourself? What false righteousness do you believe? I think each day just to look through there, take a, a moment to really think, what do I rest my righteousness in other than Jesus? Do you tend to walk by? Why and how could that change? I guess yes in some way for all of us. So why do I walk by uh, and not take pity and stop. Where are you feeling the turbulence around you? Where even this is, a, this is a really helpful discussion I found with trusted friends. Where is it feeling chaotic and crazy and I don't know what to do with conversations or how to deal with things? And how can you be a neighbor to those hurting around you? Um, we wanna take some time to reflect on this uh, and respond to this. And so that's what we do. This last uh, about 10 minutes of our time together, we're gonna reflect on this. So there's different ways we do that. Literally just sitting and thinking about those questions. We're gonna take communion. So around the room, we have a communion table in the back corner over here. And over here in the back corner, there's gluten-free over here. Uh, you don't have to be a member of Hope to take communion, but communion is an opportunity to remember Jesus who died and rose, who, who knelt down and, and came to our, our, our help, died so that we could have life. So it's an opportunity to, to do that, to maybe stop and reflect. At those tables, uh, there'll be people of an opportunity or maybe people around you who will pray for you um, uh, or just, just stop and pray. It, if, if you need to do that. Also, we'll be singing. Our worship team will lead us in a few songs to so just praise God. That's a way to respond. And lastly, another way to respond is just uh, out of a giving heart. God has given us much and we get the opportunity to give. And so you can do that on our website uh, electronically or there actually is an offering uh, uh, thing back here, an offering container that you can give if you wanna give uh, here. If you're a guest with us, don't feel any need to give. We're just really thankful you're here. Let me pray for us and we'll start a time of worship and response together. God, you're really good. Really, really good to us. You've been so merciful to us. And I pray as your family, we would continue that family tradition to be merciful. That we would 
Not ask the question, who do we have to love, but ask, show us those around us we get to love. I pray you'd move us towards them and you'd use us to help more people know the hope that we have in you. I pray this, these next minutes would be an opportunity us to reflect on that and be encouraged by that and challenge our hearts so we would leave here and people would be loved well this week. I pray this in your really good name. Amen.